This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to the arts, from history to business and innovation, faith stories, love stories, beautiful stories, and sometimes some tough and some sad stories here on this show. And this next one, well, it's a tough one. It's the story of a sex trafficking victim. This may not be easy to listen to, but it's an important story, one that we should all be aware of. Here's the story. I remember one time, and specifically, they had taken me to North Carolina and um, to traffic me, and we were in a hotel room, and, um, you know, you're trained not to, to make any sounds or to make any noise at all um you know it's it's kind of like even really the training like they do for an animal i mean you're treated like less than an animal um most pets are actually treated better than people that have gone through this um but in that moment um i had yelled out um in pain and i um police officer came to the, our door and knocked on the door and said, you know, I, we heard some sounds from here, um, you know, is there anything going on? And at that point he saw that it was just, you know, a family, supposedly. It, that's what it looked like and he, he said, well, sorry to bother you and, and he left. Hope Burl Green was born into sex trafficking. She is now an abolitionist fighting against sex slavery and the darkness therein. She does this by sharing her story to bring light to this horrible problem to which many of us are blind. My mom died when I was born and um, the people, the relatives that that took me, they were very involved. um, You know, as an infant, I was already being trafficked. Uh, There's not a, a... a memory that I have where I wasn't being trafficked. Um, we lived in a very small town um, in Kentucky, and I was taking taken to um, lots of different states, even overseas, to traffic me. They did a lot of the trafficking outs um, within their house. Um, he was a teacher in the local school uh, that I attended and she was a Head Start teacher and they were involved in church and they were involved in all the like the local small town activities so really looking at it from the outside people would think it was just a just a normal family. Hope's life seemed perfectly fine from the outside No one ever asked her anything or checked to see if there was something wrong. There are a lot of ways that we can be aware of sex trafficking. If there is even a moment we feel something isn't right, we should ask. I lived um, in this house with them and um, there was a lot of... um, what, What I call it is is programming. Uh, it's hard for people to understand that why would you stay in a situation where you're being hurt? Well, when you are um, 
a slave or when you are a person that's been trafficked, you don't know that there's any other way of life. So you do what you do until you know there's something different. Um, I mean, I was told that I was born to do what I was doing, that I, I couldn't do anything else, that God wanted me there, um, and that they were actually doing me a favor by doing what they were doing to me. And, you know, there's a lot of threats. There's a lot of um, manipulation. They use drugs to control you, um, food, uh, you know, everything that Everything I did, everything I said, everywhere I went was controlled by them. Every single detail, whether I went to the restroom, where I went to the bed, um, what I wore, who I spoke to, everything. So it's very important for people to understand that it's not just a um, situation where you can just walk away from it. It's, it's very dangerous and very controlling. Um, like I said, with even within the church where I was at, uh, they had a network of people that they were they were um, selling me to. So they would tell me that everybody there at church went, after they left there, they did the same thing that I was doing. So, you know, in my mind, this is just the way things were and they wouldn't ever change. Now, of course, I was extremely depressed. I was very, very suicidal my whole life. Um, but nobody ever asked any questions because it looked like a normal family. Um, the biggest thing for me is that um, I, you know, I looked like the all-American girl. I had, I was in, I was a cheerleader. I was in band, I was, um, you know, a good student, but I was extremely depressed and suicidal, and, and people knew that, but they just never, no one ever asked any questions. Nobody ever asked, hope are you okay? Um, you know, what's going on? Uh, if anything, it was said to me, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself because you have this amazing family and uh, you're, you're just spoiled because you're unhappy. And so that even drove it more uh, home that, you know, I couldn't trust anybody and nobody would ever believe me or help me. And we're listening to Hope Burl Green, and it's a tough story you're hearing. That quote, you do what you do until you know something different. When we come back, more of Hope Earl Green's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Hope Burl Green's story. She was the victim of sex trafficking, and we thank her for being brave enough to share her story with us today. Back to Hope's story. So how did she escape from this horrible situation? Once I got free, I, I had a lot of anger um, because I was like, why did it take so long for me to get free? Because I actually didn't get free until I was 30 years old. And, um, you know, I really prayed about that, and I felt like the Lord told me that, uh, you know, Hope, I asked thousands of people to help you, but nobody really stepped up and, and did anything. And so, or asked or anything. Around in, in my 20s, um, there was a couple that asked me, you know, are you okay? What, what's going on here? Um, you know, they could tell that I was just extremely miserable. And um, when you are in those situations, you have, you don't know how to think for yourself. You don't know how to make choices. I, I didn't know how to go to the grocery store. I didn't know how to really do anything at all on my own, um, that's another thing that they do to keep you under their control because, you know, it's, it's a constant fear. Uh, there was a constant fear of uh, me that I, I'm this horrible person. There's a constant fear that, you know, I'm going to do something wrong because every single thing that I did was always wrong. No matter what I said or did, it was always wrong and I either got um, some form of physical punishment, sexual punishment, or um, there was just uh, tons of things that they used to control me. When I was in my 20s, I began to have an eating disorder. And like I said, um, every single little thing is controlled. So, um, you know, I had a lot of a lot of issues, a lot of um, issues with depression, and I, and it was very obvious on the outside that there was something going on, but most people just thought it was me. So I was in a, in a situation where I met th this this couple. It, it just worked out to where they. They took steps to try to help me, you know, I, I finally was able, it took quite some time, um, I was finally able to open up um, a little at a time about what was going on with me, and um, as I began to do that, they began to take steps to give me a place to live, and they gave me a car to drive and help me find a job you know, just a safe place to, to stay. Now, um, it's hard to understand, um, but when every single move that you make has been controlled down to who you speak to, normally, if I ever spoke to anybody that they didn't want me to speak to that wasn't involved in all the things that they were doing, they would tell me, well, you know, the, we're going to sell you to them. Um, so they're involved as well. And so I just, I thought that everybody 
you know, that's just what people did to me. I, d I, didn't, I didn't know there was anything different. So they began to make these steps to show me love and show me kindness. And it just started breaking down walls that I could never have done on my own. And um, so I began to, to learn how to trust them. Like, I, it, I remember, um, you know, night after night, I would think, okay, well, when is going to be the day that they're going to end up like, like the other, all the other people? Like, when, when are they going to change? Um, because I was continually told that, you know, they would be just the same. Um, but over time, um, having them love me like, like a, a real family and having them care for me like a real family and not expecting anything because um, as someone who's a slave, somebody that's being trafficked, everything you do has everything you get and everything that even your basic needs are because you've done something to earn it. It's not, nothing is for free. And so as they began to do things for me and love me and show me this kindness, it just began to break down the walls. Um, and I know it's very hard and difficult for people to understand, but I was still getting traffic during that time because I just, I had been so trained to think that that's all that I deserved. So they began to just show me my value and show me that, you know, I deserved better and, and you know, I was just waiting and waiting for something bad to happen and it just never did. And so over that amount of time, you know, there's always threats, there's always, um, because they're losing, they're losing money, they're losing control. So there was a lot of threats, a lot of threats to those people a lot of threats to me um, and for me I I could deal with the threats to myself you know I, I had such low self-esteem I was okay with being hurt um, I was okay with with you know those consequences for myself but not towards these people so because of that fear I continued to be trafficked because I, I was so terrorized thinking that they, you know they would do something to these people and you know I think it just took time God was breaking down walls and helping me to see that I could be free you know I, I just I can't say it in any other way than God gave me the strength to to step out and I I had some money saved and I uh, you know just left and didn't tell anybody you know made sure they knew you know that they knew that I was going to be okay. The people that were helping me, they knew I was going to be okay. and I was taken care of, but I, I, I wanted to protect them. And I left, you know, pretty much packed up everything and left without telling anybody exactly where I was going. And um, pretty much for a whole year, was so terrorized and afraid, you know, they were going to find me. I didn't really speak to anybody until... Uh, about a year later and you know I I I guess it took that long for me to really believe that I could be free uh, and believe that God loved me enough that I could I could really say that I was 
uh, wasn't controlled. I wasn't a slave any longer. And so it was a long, long journey, but I'm extremely grateful for every um, little detail that that couple did to, to rescue me. When was it that Hope realized she was a slave and a victim of sex trafficking? Well, I, I don't think that I really ever realized until uh, I met this couple and they began, I began to see how they treated their children and I began to see how their children lived their life. And, and it didn't change. Like, it, it wasn't like in front of people they were one way and then when they came home they were a different way. Or if they were at church they were one way and they left and they were a different way. It was consistent all the time. It was consistent because the people that did, you know, traffic to me, they were hideous and, 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 and tortured me. I mean, they um, would do the most, it's hard to even say, the things that they did. Um, but then when they were in the public at church or at school or out, you know, whatever they were doing, they were completely different. Um, and so I was the one that was taking all the pain and the hurt and all that. So I, for me, it just meant that, you know, as they trained me, that I, I was so awful and bad that I deserved it. And again, you're listening to Hope Earl Green. And what a story it is. And what a sad story. And when we come back, more of her story. And by the way, so many other young women and some young boys too. Their stories all represented by Hope Burl Green's story here on Our American Stories. continue with the story of Hope Burl Green and her story of how she escaped sex trafficking. A couple took her under their wing and through the love and care they showed her, she began to see the horrors of her own life, but also a way out. So I think it really took me seeing that how they lived their life with their children and how they treated their children and, and the reality that they didn't think I was a bad, evil person. I mean, I'd never heard that before. I'd never been loved before. I'd never been given food without having to do something or a place to sleep or anything like that or clothing or anything uh, for free. And I think um, another huge thing is that, you know, when you're 
when you're being trafficked and when you're a slave, you, you have to perform every moment of every day. And so I wasn't allowed to make mistakes. I wasn't allowed to, um, you know, if I spilled a, a glass of water, it was, how could you be so evil? You did that on purpose, you know? And um, when I went to, to with these people and they showed me that, hey, if I spilled a glass of water, Oh well, it was just an accident. Never ever experienced that before. So I think just learning that that my true identity, who I really am, and being loved is what it took for me to finally see that I it was, it was completely hideously wrong what I had gone through and that I didn't deserve it. Being loved on was what it took for her to realize what she was going through was not right. Hope has mentioned God a few times. She was enslaved by a family that went to church. People in the church were buying her from them. How was it that Hope did not become embittered against God? Well, that was a journey as well. Uh, for me, God was somebody that wanted me to be hurt that wanted me to be raped, that really looked at me as somebody that um, was less than dirt, you know, was trash. Was, uh, their their um, mindset was that they were really the perfect, perfect people and I was less than and, you know, like an animal. And so I, I, I believe that uh, the first moment that I know, knew God was different was I, a lot of times they would keep me confined, like it, um, whether put me in a, in the uh, closet for weeks at a time and, and just give me what I needed to make sure I didn't get sick or, or die. Um, but I was confined, and then they would let me outside. And I remember on one one time when that happened, and I went outside, and I happened to see a was a there was a yellow butterfly and a yellow flower, and I looked at that, and I thought there's got to be something different. Like it was so beautiful. It's so powerfully beautiful. I can't even explain to you, but just seeing that, I was like, there's got to be something different than what I'm going through. Like, something that beautiful, it's like there has to be somebody, you know, like, that made this. Hope's life has been full of sadness. How has she dealt with that on this side of slavery? When you're told over and over and over that you're nothing, um, I mean, you, it's like the foundational years of my life. All Everything that I was taught was that I was this bad, horrible person and that God thought that, that too. So it really took, it really took years. I mean, since I've gotten free, um, it's been almost 16 years now. It's been a daily uh, journey with the Lord having, He's ministering to me and showing me that 
who he is and who I am and and it's so opposite you know of what I knew and I just think it's it's taken that of course I had lots of anger towards God I had to work through that and really I think it's very very important for anybody that's on a healing journey or that's gone through anything traumatic to know that they can be honest with God. I think that was a huge breakthrough for me um, because I thought, you know, I really had lived two, two separate lives, you know, one in front of people and one behind closed doors. And I had to learn that He wanted me to just be honest with my feelings and the anger that I had towards Him. and and the uh, confusion I had towards him and it was like a daily moment by moment uh, journey to learn who he is, who he really is and getting truth about um, that he's loving and that he's kind and you know really dealing with those lies that I believed and him bringing truth to that that's I think more than anything it was it was a process it's like they say um, um, like an onion, like peeling off the layers of an of an onion. It was like it was like that, um, because I think another thing people um, need to understand is that you know when you've had a life that's a fairly good life, you know you have memories that, um, like say a sound or a smell might bring up or a song. Um, and, and it brings back good memories. Now I'm sure you have bad, you know, things that bring up bad memories as well. And how that, how you deal with that, um, for a person that's been trafficked and enslaved, it's like every moment has been bad. So there's tons and tons of what I call triggers, things like a smell or a sound or. Um, you know things like that that bring things up and it's it's a moment by moment um, I think what the Lord taught me to do is just say okay this is what I'm feeling now I need I need to know the truth and whether it's through the word or through somebody else or um, there was always he he always shows me the truth and and um, you know I think that's the root thing is that I just ha had to allow him to bring truth to all of those things that I have been lied to about. And we're listening to Hope Burl Green. And it's a tough story, folks, but it's a story that's happening, well, somewhere in your town and almost everywhere across this country. And when we can see it, we've got to do something about it. And it's hard to see. Clearly, we're hearing from this story it can be almost impossible to see good people seemingly doing really evil things and in the name of God, no less. And what a healing journey for hope. Be honest with God. All those angry feelings she had towards God and she finally realized it was okay that God could handle it and that in the end God wanted her to be honest with him. And she was. And so when we come back, we're going to hear more of this remarkable story, Hope Burl Green's story. And by the way, we'll give you information at the end of the show. If you think there's anyone you know, if you've experienced this yourself, and my goodness, I've had personal experience with this in my own family, my own bride, 
years of sexual abuse to a man in town when she was young. Never reported it, couldn't report it. I was the first person she ever told. And she's forgiven him, and she's moved on. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about Hope Burl Green's story and what she did with the rest of her days here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the last part of Hope Beryl Green's story. And for the last hour, we've heard her bravely share her story of how she was a victim of sex trafficking. So it turns out that Hope ran away and even changed her name. She became a new person, starting her new life. So I think that's kind of a representative of this of this whole journey is that, you know, God, He says who we are, and um, you know, my story is representative that God can bring us through anything. Like, there's not a pit too deep that He can't rescue somebody. If He can rescue me. He can rescue anybody, you know. And so, during that that healing process, I uh, they had uh, named me a name that it, it really it rhymed with devil and demon and all that. So that that's what I thought my identity was because my name, my legal name that they called me by, you know, it it meant so much horror to me, and so. As I got free, the Lord said, you know, I want to change your name. And so the Lord had put a couple elderly ladies in, in their 90s. This is right when I got free. And they had no idea about my story, nothing about it. But he said, I just want you to go and love on them. So I would go and sit with them and just, they would talk to me for hours about their life, you know, and... One of the ladies, her uh, middle name was Burl, and you know I thought that doesn't really stand out. Why would you, why would you pick that, Lord? You know, and so the next day um, I opened my Bible and I opened it up to Song of Solomon, and when I opened it up, it says it says in Song of Solomon, his hands are set, his hands are like gold set with pearl and so they're talking about Jesus and how his hands are like his hands are gold set with pearl so the Lord said to me you know what hope I have always had you in the palm of my hand your spirit has always been in the palm of my hand yes because of evil choices of evil people you know your your body was not protected and he was 
it's like there's so many times in my healing journey that I could just hear him weeping over the pain that I endured. And I know that that's true. Any pain and hurt that people have gone through, that he, he weeps. Like, he just, he weeps that his children go through that. Um, so as I, you know, as I saw that, it was like, okay, okay, Lord, what is beryl? And so beryl, I researched it, and beryl is a precious gemstone. So the Lord had me, uh, you know, the, the couple that was so good to me, they had had, you know, kind of temporarily named me Hope. So um, it's Cleopas, which Cleopas is a, a figure in the Bible on the Emmaus Road where uh, Jesus appears to him and begins to, you know, unfold the scripture over, you know, and sit with him and just fellowship with him. And so my first name is Cleopas, which means that I was on this evil path that that was chosen for me. And he picked me up and put me on his path. Hope means confident expectation of good. Um, and then Burl means uh, a precious gemstone. And so, you know, it was like he was in, in pouring into me my true identity by, by changing my name and, uh, you know, after um, probably, I think we have a anniversary, me and my husband have been married three years um, this year and his last name is Green. So Burl is a green, like an um, aquamarine green um, stone and so now it's Cleopas Hope Burl Green. And to somebody that's just looking at their like, oh my gosh, it's not really that attractive name, but it just means so much to me. And it just shows you how um, God can take the worst of things. And it's all about Him pouring into us, you know, who we are, who He calls us to be. We are His precious gemstones, His, His light, you know, in this world. And so... That's, that's another cool story that, of how he restored me. I'm just choosing to trust him. He's asked me to write a book. So I wrote a book about um, all of the things that I went through. Um, it's a very, very detailed book. And I've got a lot of backlash from that, unfortunately, because I think a lot of times we um, are, are kind of... It's sad to say, but we don't really talk about the really deep things in church sometimes. We we don't want to get that uncomfortable. But the Lord told me, Hope, you know, sometimes people have to be uncomfortable to, to begin to deal with things. So I I was obedient and I wrote that and I um, shared all the details of my story so that people can wake up to, in the church specifically, can wake up to the reality that there is uh, slavery in this country and there's just as many slaves today as there were back then. And uh, so my my heart's desire is to for all of us to join together and to, you know, be a light and, and help, help these people by going out and speaking the truth, giving them a place to live, giving them a job, you know, showing them that they're loved, believing them, you know, and uh, 
I mean, that's, that's priceless. This message is urgent. What can we do to be more aware of these situations? And uh, my main thing is I want people to understand that it's not just uh, trafficking on the streets, which is just as bad. Um, it's trafficking next door. Um, your next door neighbor may be somebody that's trafficking somebody just because someone looks like the normal person doesn't mean that they don't have things going on that you're not aware of and I, I I don't say this to make people afraid I just really say this so that people will begin to question their surroundings for example if you have a feeling inside that that makes you feel like something's off or something's not right here to not just leave it at that because I think that we have the ability within us to kind of discern and know that there's something wrong in what's going on and that may be the very thing that keeps someone from going through a lifetime of slavery and not you know them getting the opportunity to get free if you have an opportunity, say the person walks away from the, 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 the trafficker or the person you think that is, is the trafficker, slip them a note, ask them are they okay. Um, you know, I, it's going to take all of us joining hands and choosing to make that decision that may be a little uncomfortable to maybe speak out, but it's worth it if it's a, a life that's saved. Um, had that that couple not have reached out to me and asked me, I would still be um, be I would be sold continually. Healing takes time, but thankfully, God heals in time. In spite of all that she's been through, Hope's heart is incredibly soft to the pain of others. It's a process. It really is. That's what I tell people. It's the same pain. We all, you know, want to be loved and cared for, and the things that we go through. It, we all, we, if we, we've all been in that place of of pain, and you know, it's just important to to come alongside each other and and to love each other through it. You know. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, on these stories, Faith. And what a story Hope Burl Green told. She became a new person, she said. She started her new life. And what a story about even her new name. And by the way, we tell these stories, and sometimes these tough stories, because, well, as she said, sometimes... People have to be uncomfortable to deal with things. And if this can help just one person listening or two, my goodness. And if it can lift your spirits that a total stranger, the power of love and unconditional love for a total stranger, it changed a life, folks. That was what was so powerful about the movie and the book, The Blind Side. What can happen when we love somebody who doesn't have love and never received love unconditionally anywhere else in the world? And by the way, when we have to and when it's necessary, we never leave God out of a story. And my goodness, the role God played in this story. 
God says who we are, Hope said, God can bring us through everything. If he can rescue me, he can rescue anybody. And by the way, to call the National Human Trafficking Hotline to reach them, call 888-373-7888 to get help and connect with a service provider in your area. Report a tip. Learn more. 888-373-7888. Hope Burl Green's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us, as always, by the folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Just go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for their free and terrific online courses. This next American story is about the youngest Civil War general in the Union Army, an incredibly fearless man who scented his hair with cinnamon oil, a man whose heroics have been reenacted time after time for the big and large stage and screen. In fact, President Ronald Reagan played him in the 1940 Western Santa Fe Trail, a box office success that Reagan starred opposite Errol Flynn. A year later, Flynn also starred as this man in the biopic they died with their boots on. On this day in 1877, the U.S. Army held a West Point funeral with full military honors for Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. This is his story. On a desolate hillside amidst the rolling prairie of Montana, George Armstrong Custer made his last stand. Although one of the most successful military leaders in United States history, it was Custer's defeat that made him a legend and gave the American West its first true hero. Historians now cast a less glorious picture of George Custer, who is more likely referred to as a villain than as an American martyr. But one point is clear. George Custer was an exceptionally brave and effective combat leader. During America's bloody civil war, the 23-year-old Custer became the youngest and most admired general in the Union Army, with heroics that helped him win the most decisive battle at Gettysburg. Custer in a battle uh, was, was a thing of beauty. Uh, he, he could direct people with precision, uh, never get rattled. I mean, he just had a sense of physical courage. Uh, that was inspiring. And that's a real gift when you're out there in the chaos of war. And Custer had it. From an early age, it was clear that this Ohio boy was determined to transcend his lowly origins. His self-confidence so impressed his congressman that despite his lack of qualifications, he won a coveted spot at West Point in 1857. By the time of his graduation from West Point in 1861, 
Custer's insubordination helped him compile a list of infractions never before equaled in the history of the Academy. Custer uh, would finish last in his class, but he wasn't stupid by any means. Whenever he was running into serious trouble, he'd hunker down and work his way back. And so, in one sense, he led a chaotic, fun-filled life, but on the other, there was a real discipline there. Although Custer was fresh out of West Point when the Civil War began, his exploits on the battlefield proved that he was more than ready for command. He never asked anyone to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. In the bloodiest war in all of American history, he is in the thick of the fighting from the first battle to the last battle, and he's barely scratched. It's just absolutely remarkable. Custer's luck, he called it, and he came to believe in it. Cited for bravery in his very first engagement at the Battle of Bull Run, the New York Tribune proclaimed, future writers of fiction will find in Brigadier General Custer most of the qualities which go to make up a first-class hero. Not only did the flamboyant Custer act the part of a hero, but he also dressed the part. It was like a, a circus rider gone mad, someone wrote. But those who at first thought this was just a showman quickly changed their mind because Custer was a fighter. His soldiers, they admired him, uh, even worshipped him. They emulated his dress and uh, his division began to sport red scarves uh, so that they could all look like Custer. Custer became known as the boy general and stayed on the very front lines until the last day of the Civil War, receiving the flag of truce when General Robert E. Lee finally surrendered at Appomattox on April 9, 1865. During the months following the surrender at Appomattox, the restless Custer found peace more challenging than war. But then in the fall of 1866, Custer received an offer to join the 7th Cavalry to protect gold miners and settlers from Sioux and Cheyenne tribes. Custer goes out to the Indian frontier. It's really the only active theater of operations. This isn't like the Confederates. The Sioux and the Cheyenne and the Arapaho, they don't know the histories of, say, Napoleon Bonaparte's armies, and they don't care. Custer camps on top of hills so that he has a view of the countryside, builds big fires. It's well, the first thing that happens, the enemy sees him and goes away. Then, on August 4th, 1873, while protecting the Northern Pacific Railroad workers in Montana, Custer and his 7th Cavalry were attacked for the first time by a large band of Sioux warriors who were led by Crazy Horse and the legendary medicine man, Sitting Bull. But the young braves attacked impetuously and with little planning. Custer, who had been taking an afternoon nap, reacted quickly and mounted an effective defense. After a brief skirmish, the Indians withdrew. Custer's first encounter with Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse helped to confirm his belief that the Plains warriors tended to flee rather than fight. What he doesn't realize is he's fighting what we have come to know as a guerrilla war. It's not that he doesn't have courage to show, it's that he doesn't have a, a place to show it in because he can't find the enemy and display the courage the way he's used to. 
And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer facing a war and a warrior class he didn't understand, guerrilla warfare he'd never seen before or studied. On this day in history in 1877, the U.S. Army held a West Point funeral with full military honors for this man, and we're about to dig into the life behind the life of Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer after these messages. our American stories and we continue the story of Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. The Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 had created the Great Sioux Reservation, which encompassed most of the modern-day state of South Dakota, as well as millions of acres of hunting ground to the west and north, including the Black Hills. By the terms of the treaty, This land, which the American government viewed as worthless, had been granted to the Sioux forever. In return, they were supposed to cease hostilities against the Americans. The majority of the tribe had followed this course, but Sitting Bull remained defiant, refusing to acknowledge the treaty, let alone sign it. Then in 1874, thousands of Americans violated the treaty when a four-letter word made headlines across the country. It's uh, 1874 when the news hits the public that there's gold in the Black Hills. And this is a time of depression in the United States. And so those men and some women who can outfit themselves get their equipment and head to the Black Hills to mine for gold. The position of the U.S. government is that Miners are going to invade that country, and there's going to be a war with Indians, and that is inevitable. The white man had made a treaty with Red Cloud that said the Black Hills would be ours as long as the grass should grow and the water flow. Later, I learned that the long hair had found there much of the yellow metal that makes the white man crazy, and that is what made the bad trouble. Blackout, 1874. Ironically, it was Custer himself who started this gold rush after leading an expedition into the sacred Sioux lands of the Black Hills and discovering the pay dirt. Custer has a great phrase. He says, we found gold among the roots of the grass. Uh, And he creates this image in that phrase that you just go there. You're a farmer, right? You're going to just plow up the land. You're going to plow up the land. First, you dig up the gold. You put the gold in the bank. Then you put your wheat in the ground. More than 15,000 miners flooded into the region, establishing the towns of Custer and Deadwood. The government offered to buy the Black Hills for $6 million, but the Sioux turned them down. Conflict was inevitable. 
elements from Sitting Bull's camps come down and uh, threaten to kill any chief that touches uh, pen to paper. Finally, on November 3rd, President Ulysses S. Grant determined to eliminate this last pocket of Indian resistance in the West. Custer, now 36, was the natural choice to lead such an operation. His mission was to force Sitting Bull and his resistance onto the reservation, or destroy them in the process. Putting Custer in charge of this operation showed that the American government meant business. Gentlemen, I want each of your men to carry 100 rounds of carbine, 24 rounds of pistol ammunition, rations, 15 days per man, hardtack, coffee, sugar, 12 days of bacon, and another 50 rounds of ammunition per man on a mule train. Any questions? Sir, 15 day supplies without wagons? Chasing Indians, Colonel, not cattle. Gotta be quick, gotta be mobile. Wagons will slow us right down. Do not hold me back. I will not have a single Indian say that he escaped the 7th Gavalry. Mark Kellogg, a small-town reporter for the Bismarck Tribune, was the only reporter on Custer's last campaign. His dispatches will be reprinted in the New York Herald. President Grant forbids the Army from taking reporters with them, but Custer knows the value of publicity. Sir. General. We'll talk in the morning, Mr. Kellogg. Some of the officers seem unhappy. Repeat that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that what you're going to tell your readers, Mr. Kellogg? I'd like to hear your side, sir. Sit down. You want to catch Indians, you have to travel as they do. This is their country. They know it better. Tell your readers this. 7th Cavalry's gonna get him. Mr. Kellogg, we're going to war. We're not fighting white men. It's not Union and Confederates. For us, warfare has rules, not for the Indians. Tell you what's worse than how they fight. How they don't fight. The Indian feels no dishonor at running away. First sign of trouble, they'll scatter. Damn Redskins. Only good Indian is a dead Indian. That's a common view, Mr. Kellogg, and if you'll pardon me, plain stupid. If I was an Indian, I'd rather live on the open plains than submit to the confines of a reservation. Not that you readers want to read that either. My orders are clear, Mr. Kellogg. The Indians are to be subdued and driven back to their reservation. You're taking a lot of ammunition. <laughs> we may need it. You can print that. Custer had a kind of a tortured relationship uh, with Native peoples. He identified with them very strongly, uh, prided himself in his knowledge of their rituals and, and lifestyle. And so that, you know, at one point he's embracing them and in many ways imitating them. But on the other side, he was part of white civilization and saw them as a primitive race that were uh, going to eventually melt into the shadows. Custer and his 7th Cavalry are also joined by a company of Indian scouts, mostly Crow and Arikara, 
who as lifelong enemies of the Sioux, allied themselves with the Americans. But in response to a plea from Sitting Bull, the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes will join the Sioux in their fight. Within a week or so prior to the Battle of Little Bighorn, many more of these reservation Indians were pouring into Sitting Bull's camps. This number swelled to probably 1,500 to perhaps as many as 2,000 warriors by June 25th. Seven to 8,000 individuals altogether. Sitting Bull has amassed the greatest gathering of Indians on the Northern Plains in its history. He sees it as his last stand against white encroachment. For Sitting Bull's people, there's no place to run. There's no place to go. This is it. Shortly after dawn on June 25, 1876, Custer ascends to an overlook called the Crow's Nest near the Little Bighorn River in Montana. They cannot see the village directly because the terrain is very deceptive. But in the valley of the Little Bighorn, uh, they can see arising a huge cloud of, of smoke. The crows were the first ones to recognize the fact that there was, they said there was more Indians there than, 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 the, than the military had bullets. It was clear as a stream at sunrise. Well, I said it's as good as anyone. I can't see anything. It's a big village. No Indians, nothing. Look for the wriggling worms. Worms? That'll be the pony herd. <sighs> Sir, if you don't find more Indians in that valley than you ever saw, you can hang me. It's a damn sight of good hanging you, wouldn't it? Today we rest up. Tonight we surround them. At daybreak, we attack. Play cute. Play cute. Play Aik Isla. He says if you must attack, it has to be today. Today, under cover, we rest. Tomorrow, and I know what hit him. Well, then tomorrow we're going to have one big fight. That is my plan. Sir. Pack fell off one of the mules. I know. We sent some men to pick him up. They found it, sir, a mile or so back. There were two Indians by it. I trust they were dealt with? They got away, sir. Which direction? Get back to you, man. Gentlemen, the scouts assure me that the Indians are very close. How many, it's hard to say. But our presence has quite possibly been discovered. We have no choice but to launch our attack today. Today, sir? The men need rest. Horses, too. If we so delay one more day, that whole village could scatter. Hell, they might even attack us. Prepare your men. Yes, sir. Then, waving his hat in his hand, he declares... Gentlemen, we're going to capture this village in one piece. Cross the river, take the women and children hostage. When the warriors return, they won't touch us. We caught them napping! Yeah! Let's go get them, boys. Finish this up and head for home. To the river! More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and now the final segment. Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer and the final battle of his life. We caught him napping! Let's go get him, boys. Finish this up and head for home. To the river! As they gallop into the Sioux camp, Custer makes a tactical decision and splits his cavalry into four parts. against uh, 90 men down there were just overwhelming odds. As soon as Custer's cavalry arrive, Indians come pouring out of the village and the outnumbered troopers begin a panic retreat. Soldiers were not prepared. They were tired, they'd ridden all night long. They were fighting these Indians and, and they got they got war paint on and they looked mean, you're scared of them. You're not gonna act like normal. They were absolutely scared of, of, of the tribes coming in. Of course, the Indians took, took advantage of that. They could see warriors flitting around the woods. The sounds were incredible. The whistles, the screams, the, the firing of the guns particularly bad with the arrows that were coming down through the trees. It was terrifying. It was over 90 degrees, it was hot, you had gunpowder in the air, you had people screaming, people crying, women on the battlefield that grabbing their tongue, uh, singing songs, singing praise songs. conventional warfare training is worthless against the Great Plains Indians. The Indians are moving up the gullies. They're not exposing themselves. They're not foolish enough to ride their horses around the soldiers uh, in Hollywood fashion. And then there was a rush. And Custer's last stand is over. Probably the whole battle from the time first Custer was engaged until the last man was killed uh, did not uh, consume an entire hour. When the smoke from the battlefield lifts, every soldier under Custer's command is lost, all 225 men. The Indians lost only 60 braves. Custer's body is found at the crest of a flat-topped hill. His brother Tom lie beside him. His other brother Boston and nephew Audie along with his brother-in-law, Lieutenant Calhoun, lie nearby. News of the Battle of the Little Bighorn came like a thunderstorm out of the West, and it rained on the biggest parade of the century. In Philadelphia, all of the 
best and brightest of the United States, including all the top brass of the United States Army, had gathered for the centennial celebration of the United States of America. The Republic was 100 years old, but now came the news from the plains that Custer and the 7th Cavalry had been wiped out by the Sioux in Montana. Sherman and Sheridan responded as one. It's a lie. It couldn't possibly be true. But nevertheless, on July 4th, 1876, the news broke. Indeed, it was true. Custer was dead. The 7th Cavalry shattered. The Sioux were triumphant on the Northern Plains. An angry nation demanded answers. This was a thunderbolt. The West was won. How could this happen? It's like uh, the sinking of the unsinkable Titanic. You know, it just doesn't compute. So who was at fault? Custer was reckless according to the person who is doing the evaluating. Custer's personality, in fact, uh, is a product more of the person who's looking at him than it is Custer himself because who he was depends on who you are. And if you're inclined to see recklessness in uh, his actions, you will consider him to be reckless. If you are one of the Custer admirers, you will see in his every decision uh, uh, the marks of a military genius. It's funny that we have to blame someone. We can't, we can't say that the army lost that fight because the Indians won. But the greatest Indian victory in the history of the West stirred a vengeance that the Plains Indians would regret to this very day. For Sitting Bull, who took no active part in the fight, gave his braves one simple command. Sitting Bull warned the people that when they die in camp, you are instructed not to take anything from them, nothing, part of war is that you take their guns, you take their ammo, you take their clothing, you these become trophies, booty of war, and, and all, all armies have done it. And so it was standard practice. But he warned the people, do not take anything from these soldiers when they die in our camp, or great misery will befall our people. People did not listen to what Sitting Bull had told them, and they took everything they could. And after that, we know that they chased us to the four corners of this country and to Canada as well. And great ministry has befallen our people ever since, even to this day. By the fall of that year, virtually all the Sioux and Cheyenne who fought in the battle were forced back onto the reservation. A year later, Crazy Horse turned himself in and was killed in a scuffle with guards. Sitting Bull escaped to Canada, but later returned to the United States. He had a part in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, reenacting the Battle of Little Bighorn. He died a reservation Indian. And great job, as always, on that. And that's Greg Hengler doing the writing and the producing on that piece. The battle was over in an hour. 225 men killed. The 7th Cavalry wiped out. And George Custer didn't just lose his life. His brother did. 
Talk about having some skin in the game. The Indians lost only 60. We love bringing you these in this days in histories because, as David McCullough reminds us in a great Hillsdale speech, nothing had to happen the way it happened. And we always look back and judge, and we can't. And too often, the way history is taught today, well, it's just not contextualized. There's agendas, and that's what we try to do here in this, in, on this show each and every day, is tell you the story straight up. And again, as always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses. The Constitution 101 course being the best. I went to a great law school and I can promise you, I learned little of what I learned sitting in on that Dr. Larry Orrin course at Hillsdale. It's that good. Again, it's free. And history, well, it should come alive like this. It's not a bunch of dead old guys. They were alive. They didn't know what was going to happen. And when we're listening, we have to pretend we didn't either. Custer's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and this is the story of how a Florida couple kept seven siblings, four brothers and three sisters, ages 12 to 4, together that were separated throughout four different foster homes. Sophia and Deshaun Olds, both 33, got married in 2004, and they admit that as newlyweds, they were too busy with schooling and serving in the military, both veterans who served overseas in Iraq, to think about starting a family. This is the story of how one childless married couple of 13 years became a family of nine, literally, overnight. We thought like we would never ever get adopted, but I thought this was like a really good blessing for us. I never actually had a mom and a dad under the same roof. But it feels great. It's like they both like a half of something, like peanut butter and jelly. Hello, I'm Deshaun Oles. And I'm Sophia Oles. And we would like to tell you about our process, our story of adoption. We have always wanted to adopt. We've been married for about 13 years now. And it had always been in our plans to adopt and to have biological children. We actually took the classes in 2006 and were preparing to adopt a child. However, we couldn't agree upon an age. So we postponed it, got busy with life, enjoying life, continuing in our careers in college, military, us traveling. We just were enjoying life. We were having a wonderful time together with family, with friends. 
Uh, I know a lot of people probably wonder and question why is it that they don't have biological children. It just never happened for us. In 2013, I took a pregnancy test and the test came back positive. And it was the scariest thing to me. I cried and I cried and I cried because I wasn't ready to be a mother. I know that being a mother is one of the most important jobs, number one, in this world. And I guess I felt like I wasn't ready to do that, that I couldn't be that yet. And a couple days later, um, I miscarried. It was confirmed by the doctors and I had miscarried. And again, I felt another form of sadness because, you know, a child that we would have, we no longer would have, even though we were early on in our pregnancy. It was, it was still devastating for me. No, I hadn't felt the baby kick. I hadn't felt the baby move, but it was devastating. But again, we continued life. Also, we were very active in our local church. So we were active in, my husband is the youth pastor, children's church, ages what? Four to 12. Always been a part of my life just to help out with children in the church. And I guess one thing we always did is that every time we gave our offering, we had on the back of it, um, adopt a child on there. And then it was just no surprise that this story came out the day after Thanksgiving. And the day after Thanksgiving, what most people are doing is shopping. How we are shopping and we saw the story on Facebook these seven children who needed a home. It was home for the holidays. And one scripture just came to my mind is that in my father's house there's many rooms and I go prepare a place for you. And in the Lord's Prayer, we do things on earth as it is in heaven. So we had a space to truly be, to open our home for seven children. And we knew that we had everything that these children needed. They needed a mother, a father. They needed stability, structure, discipline with us having military. They needed love, they needed care. My husband being a teacher, me and being in social work, having those skills, the spiritual background, everything. We were just putting our whole hope and our whole trust and all of our, our dreams and our ambitions and our life in his hands. We were surrendering all when we decided to adopt our seven children. Yeah. And once we put our faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. These students I've been serving at Rutherford High School, their parents came together and said, what can we do? What can we do? They did everything from bringing furniture to build bunk beds to donate sports equipment to donate groceries. One parent is a farmer and truly just slaughtered a pig for us. So we have sausage, bacon, and everything else. And also, our families a day hasn't gone by that they haven't asked us or given to us, whether it be snacks for the children to take to school, whether it be cooking up a big pot of 
llama beans, helping out, cooking food, getting the children off the bus when we both have to work, picking oranges, whatever it is, any extra that they have had, anything that they could give, whether it be $5, we have had that outpouring from our families from both sides. We have had that from complete strangers that live thousands and thousands of miles away. It has been no stress, no struggle at all. And I do believe that that goes back to us doing the will of God to help build his kingdom, to provide a home for, as the Bible calls them, orphans. You know, that is something that the Bible states we should do. Yes, in James 127, it says true religion is to take care of the orphans. And we all know that it is more blessed to give than to receive if we were allowed to adopt these seven children, we would do it. We would work every day of our lives to make sure that they are cared for. And I think what's most important too is for them to see and to have an example of what it's like to have a father who is the head of the household, who has a strong faith and belief in God, and who can teach them, who can lead the family. And I know that they enjoy that. I know that they feel privileged and proud to know that their dad is up there teaching them. You can see the smiles on their face and they enjoy talking about it afterwards. They ask lots of questions. Um, so that whole aspect has been wonderful to have him up front teaching our children um, about God, about the things that they should do in life to be saints, to be good children, to grow up, to be successful. Yep. And I like to just thank for my spiritual fathers because I do not have a biological father involved in my life, but my spiritual fathers from my pastors to different men in my church who helped show me the way right there. And I could just use that to impart not only to my children, but all the children I minister to on a weekly basis. So I think it's important to know that in this story of adoption, I am not called to be a minister, to be behind a pulpit, to preach at a church, to be a pastor. But I know that this is my calling that God has placed in my life and I am embracing it. I am enjoying it. And that's why I can say that I am not stressed because it is something that we are doing that we are supposed to do. So it makes it so much easier. Does it require a lot from us? A lot of time, um, a lot of correction that we have to do, but it is also worth it, every part of it. This is what we're supposed to do in life. These seven children are our calling to be their mother and their father. And we take it just as serious as if um, it was a pastor over a church or a CEO over a business. This is us, a manager over a team. This is us. This is what we are called to do. And we give him all the praise, the glory, the honor for it, because without him, we would not be able to do this. And we are doing it. And that is our story. And what a story it was. And thanks, Greg, for doing that. And thank you, Sophia and Deshaun Olds, for recording that. And for doing what you did, it's an inspiration. People listening who are thinking about it, well, just do it. Fill that house up with love. They immediately adopted seven children who needed a home. 
and one's a teacher. Uh, They didn't have the means, but they did it anyway. And look at the fruits of their love. And it was their faith, of course, the fruits of their faith. They just did it. They answered to a higher power. And by the way, NBC's Today Show, ABC News, Inside Edition, Miami Herald, Parents.com, and People, they all did this story, but they somehow managed to leave the faith walk of this couple out of the story. And just a few things they said, and it was Sophia who said this, once you put your faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. And in came the food, and in came the help from the family members, in came all that love. True religion is to take care of the orphans. And if more Christians in this great country did what this young couple did, my goodness, we could solve a lot of problems in our country. A lot of homeless problems, a lot of kids without parents. And we'll bring these adoption stories to you because they're beautiful, and hopefully they have some imitative power. That is, some of you listening may just decide to fill your home with some kids in need. This is Our American Story, Sophia and Deshaun Olds' story, and those seven kids they adopted, their stories too.